So uh, we are in Luke chapter 24, and, um, and it's just a beautiful passage. And so if you have a Bible, which I always encourage you to bring something that you can read and follow along, we do have it on the screens. There's something about be- becoming familiar with the terrain of your own Bible that I think is a real beautiful invitation. But um, we're gonna be 13, uh, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. I'm gonna read it through. You can just close your eyes and listen if you want. You can follow along as you want. This is a beautiful story of Jesus appearing after the resurrection to two people on a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to a small village called Emmaus. And here's what it says. Now on the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he said, Jesus said. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of that took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They, they went to the tomb early in the morning but didn't find his body. And they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And he said to them, meaning Jesus, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village on which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. And when he asked, when he, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and he broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us while, we ta- while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen. And as appeared to Simon, then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. This is a beautiful story in scripture. And, uh, and so let's go into a bit of context here and then we'll take a journey through, through this passage of scripture here today. Uh, let's talk real quick about the people in the place briefly. The people here are very much unknown. We know that one of them, their names is Cleopas, which is a fantastic name. And then we know there was another one with them. And based on the pronouns in the passage, I actually think it's probably a married couple, but it could be two friends. Uh, either way, they're going to either their home as a married couple or they're going to one of their homes, as far as we can tell, to a obscure 
uh, village that doesn't exist anymore named Emmaus that is seven miles from Jerusalem. So this is a journey that requires hours on foot. And so to get what is happening here, I wanna begin with some questions. And I wanna encourage you in your own Bible reading, begin with questions, write questions down. Let them sit, even if you don't have answers to them right away, just begin to peel back the layers and wonder through the avenue of questions. So one question I wanna ask is, why were they leaving Jerusalem? Pretty obvious question, right? Like, why were they leaving Jerusalem? Well, it's, it's not so obvious on the surface. Jerusalem was the center of life and faith, really for, for Jewish people, but also for followers of Jesus. But we know followers of Jesus, many weren't following Jesus anymore because they thought Jesus was dead. And so they're in this interesting situation where they're leaving, but there's a clue in verse 17. And in verse 17, it says this, their face their faces were downcast. And that word downcast means gloomy or depressed. They're so gloomy and depressed that you can visually see it. In fact, um, there is uh, uh, some, some ancient photography actually from that time. You, you may not have known this. Not everybody has access to it. And it really does invite you into what it probably looked like on that road. And so I wanna share this with you today. And here's what it probably looked like. So I know I'm, I'm full of jokes today. Ha ha ha, Dave. Okay. And so they're feeling down and it's visible. And let's follow the clue by asking this question. Why are they sad? Well, um, this is where it gets interesting. Because in verse 15, it says this. Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them. Now, I want, I want us to begin to notice things along the way. And my hope is that whenever we open the scriptures, you'll read between the lines. I'll make some points and, and have some noticings. We will as we teach the Bible. But you actually might have something highlighted for you. And there's this interesting piece here that as they were moving away from Jesus and the Jesus movement, Jesus himself was moving towards them. And so we get this image that when we're trying to separate ourselves or even just feeling like we're on an escalator moving further away from hope, there is this pursuit of God, like as if hope is chasing us down. In this case, it was very literal. Jesus tracked them down. He walked alongside them. And in verse 16, it says this, that they did not recognize Jesus. And this is so fascinating to me. And it is a pattern of some of these post-resurrection stories. He didn't recognize Jesus. How do you not recognize Jesus when he's standing right in front of you? And there's many sort of excuses for that that come to mind. But let's just look um, real quick. So at the pattern, last week, Easter, we talked about Mary Magdalene and her first encounter, the first person encountering the risen Jesus. Both Mary and these two people thought that Jesus was far away because death is, in a sense, <laughs> is about as far away as you can get. So it seems like Jesus is really distant from us. Both were sad. Mary was weeping. They looked like Eeyore walking down the road. And both didn't recognize when Jesus came near. There's a third century rabbi, Rabbi Shemuel ben Nachmani, and he said this. He said, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. And I wanna point this out because this is a window into our human nature. In other words, and I believe this, 
Their eyes weren't telling their mind what they're seeing. Their mind was telling their eyes what to see, in a sense. Jesus is dead and far. That's what their brain is telling themselves. So when Jesus is standing in front of them, they can't see past that narrative and that grief that they're holding on to with hope staring them in the face. Have you ever been there before where you realize looking back, oh, I was a lot closer to hope than I expected. I think about some of you who came up here to receive prayer today and thank you for leading us in that rose and facilitating that time. Maybe, just maybe, like this story, there's hope um, and maybe if you feel far from God, you'll realize even a little bit more today, God's presence is way closer than you think. So uh, let's just have a real quick honest moment with ourselves on some level, okay? This is confession for us today. On some level, we are all blind. We do not see reality perfectly. Raise your hand if you see reality perfectly. We're gonna come around here and pray for you. Don't raise your hand. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> we are all blind to some degree. And, and in that, that idea that we're blind, we have containers in life. And our containers are our upbringing, the culture we live in, the schools that we've experienced, the experiences we've had, the emotions that we hold like them holding grief. And, and all of those containers, in a sense, shrink Jesus so that Jesus can fit in those containers. And the container that they held then is that Jesus can't rise from the dead. And so Jesus is shrunk down to fit into their worldview or their containers. And the only thing that can truly reveal Jesus to us, because we can't conjure up faith on our own, the only thing that can, that can obliterate those containers is experiencing the, present, the presence of God of Jesus firsthand, and that's exactly what happened in this passage. This is exactly what happened. They were, they were living in a lie with a really small dead Jesus, like we talked about last week a bit. So the risen Jesus confronted that false reality that they were living in in a pretty odd way. And so let's look at how Jesus did this. It's fascinating. Verse 17, Jesus asked them, so what are you discussing as they're walking along the road, as if he can't hear. And Cleopas is surprised, and he's confused at Jesus's question. And he says this in verse 18. He says, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that had happened here in these days? You knucklehead, are you the only one? Do you think that maybe down the road he wishes he could have just taken back those words? <laughs> I just wish, you ever say something to God and you're like, yeah. Wish I, wish I didn't say that. Yet God is so gracious, right? So gracious with our, with our moments. And Jesus responds, what things? Okay, this is interesting because Jesus is the one who still carries the scars in his hands. And Jesus was the one beaten, bloody, and put on that cross. Jesus. What is Jesus doing? Saying, what things? Clearly, if anyone knows what happened, it's Jesus that knows what has happened. Uh, and so what is happening here? And, and Jesus not only came close to them, but he is also drawing them out in the same way that he drew Mary out. Remember, he came alongside Mary with a question. And he said, why are you crying? Drawing her out so that the stuff that's on the inside 
can come out because it's, it's that place of, of confession. I mean, Jesus uses questions constantly to put the ball in our court, not to just demand or conquer us like this, but to serve us by lovingly and patiently drawing us out. And with these people here, he comes alongside them. He says, what are you talking about? And they sarcastically make this remark to Jesus about Jesus. And Jesus says, well, what are you talking? He's drawing them out. He's not looking for answers to the questions. He's looking for them to name the things that are on the inside of, of them. This is more than a conversation technique, I believe, because it's such a pattern in Jesus's life. This is a window into the heart of God. Jesus is surrounded with people living in a false reality, surrounded with people living in a sense a lie. And Jesus didn't use the truth as a weapon to shame them, but a pathway for hope. And I I want to call this out real quick because um, Jesus could have used truth to clobber people. Um, but instead, Jesus gently draws people out. And this brings up an idea around truth. Truth is a beautiful thing, but by itself, it can do a lot of damage. Has anybody ever told you the truth in a way that magnified the pain of that truth? And Jesus doesn't wield truth as a weapon, but as a, as a, for, as a way to heal and a way to bring hope. It is not enough, and I think as, a, as followers of Jesus, people who have very specific beliefs, and you know what, followers of Jesus have some controversial beliefs. I just wanna name that. Jesus is the only way, really. <laughs> Truth alone is not enough. And in fact, as disciples, everybody say that word for a second, disciple, disciple. Think about what that word means. Disciple is somebody who follows their rabbi in the first century, follows their rabbi to become like their rabbi in how they think, how they live their life. A disciple is not as much a theologian, although theology is important. A disciple is a practitioner, somebody who's practicing the way of Jesus. Um, a, a, somebody who's a theologian can stand up over, the, over, over everyone else and say, I, I know the truth, I got it figured out, and you don't. Um, a practitioner is somebody who's practicing the way of Jesus in community. It brings us down to level ground with each other. And the obvious example of this is Satan himself, the Satan himself, has a lot of right theology, knows a lot of things that we don't know, yet we can wield truth in a way that doesn't look like Jesus. And so when we see Jesus using, drawing people out gently, it is a pattern that we as followers of Jesus are called into, to yes, hold on to truth, but with grace and with a posture of love. And, and if you need a, um, a real beautiful reference to this, it's John 1:17, where it talks about the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what was their response? They go on this little, this little monologue here, uh, starting at verse 19, and they say, what things, he asked. And uh, Jesus said, what things to them? And they said this, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. Uh, before God and all the people, the chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. And, and I just want to point out this next verse. It's, it's actually looked at as the key verse that unlocks this whole passage. And it's verse 21. And it, here's what it says. 
But, he, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And here we pick up on our initial questions, which were this. Why were they leaving Jerusalem and why were they sad? And here's what we'll point to and then we'll unpack why. Because they came to the conclusion that Jesus was not the Messiah they had hoped for. They had this expectation around who Jesus was and Jesus did not live up to their expectations. Um, I expect this. Maybe some of you had expectations coming into your following Jesus, your journey with Jesus, your Christian life, and it, it, it isn't what you expected. And when we, how many of you know, when you have expectations and something doesn't meet those expectations, it can be really painful. And Jesus didn't meet their expectations. They had a lens for understanding the Messiah. And I wanna paint this picture real quick, but first let me say this. Are you with me, church family? Okay. I just need to make sure. I know it's snowy out and we're all kind of like, huh. Okay, the lens is this. The lens is Moses. Moses is the lens that they were looking through. They were looking for a new Moses that would lead them out of, not Egypt, uh, but they would actually conquer the Romans and lead them out of Rome. How do we know that these two specific people were looking for that kind of Messiah? Well, I'm glad you asked because in this passage of scripture, it is so profound as you begin to peel back the layers. Um, this is loaded with all sorts of Moses imagery. And here's what it says in verse 19. This is an important verse to highlight in regards to their expectation. It says, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And that word prophet there, uh, that word prophet is actually pointing back to Deuteronomy 18.15 where it says that there is a prophet coming like Moses who will set the people free. But then as we continue through this other little phase, phrase, that this person will be powerful in word and in deed. That is how the people of Israel described Moses. Power, those are the specific, same specific words. And we see it in Acts chapter seven, verse 22, that Moses was powerful in words and deed. And so there's another phrase in here where he says, before God and all the people. And that word, before God and all the people, if you look at the whole chapter of Deuteronomy 34, the, the Israelites, they, this is the vision of Moses, that he was before God, as a friend of God, but also before all the people. And when they use the word that they hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel, that word redeemed actually means to free them from slavery. Like we're, being, we're slaves to Rome, just like they were to Egypt. So a new Moses is gonna come and free us. And then Jesus didn't live up to that because he actually suffered and died at the hands of the enemy. That's not how the story should go. And so they were, le they were leaving Jerusalem because they were sad, because Jesus did not live up to their expectations. They got their hopes up looking for a Messiah. They have no framework for a Messiah who would suffer um, at the hands of the enemy. And, uh, and so... They are discouraged and they are disillusioned. And then let's look at Jesus' responses in verse 25 through 27. And it says this. He said to them, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
And now Jesus here brings up the truth and confronts their false reality and he actually begins where they're at. He begins with Moses. All right, so you wanna talk about Moses. Let's start there. And it actually says here, and I think this is fascinating, that Jesus opened up the word to them, the scriptures to them. Like, what did he open up? You think Jesus was carrying a Bible? Was Jesus carrying a, a scroll? All right, now I wanna talk to you about Moses. That'd be kinda cool. We should carry those around. Jesus himself is the incarnate word of God. And this is a statement that says Jesus actually opened up himself to them, which is so beautiful, so beautiful. And, and what's fascinating about this passage of scripture, um, what, uh, Jesus brought the truth into their false reality, 26. He showed them that the Messiah had to suffer and they were looking for a Messiah that would set them free from suffering. And Jesus is trying to show them that actually this Messiah would set them free through suffering. And you see this juxtaposition. Um, and this is the, there's the gospel built into this. Not Jesus didn't want to. I'm gonna say it. Some of you know it. But maybe there's some people here that don't. Jesus didn't want to exercise power over conquering, conquering Rome to set a small group of people free. Jesus wanted to show power under suffering, not causing suffering, to conquer sin, your sin, so that you can be forgiven, to conquer death and darkness, so that not just a portion of people could be set free, but all people could be set free. Amen? That's the story. And may we never, never get tired of hearing it. May we never get tired of hearing it. So, can we just pause for a moment, though, because this is so fascinating to me. This is the best Bible study ever. How many of you would sign up to be a part of that one? Seven miles with Jesus, opening up the scriptures from the very beginning of the Hebrew scriptures to the end. You raise your hand back there. I'm with you. That's like best Bible study ever. Here's what's fascinating. Uh, the irony of the story is that we wish we could be there, and they have no clue it's happening. It's kind of like, I don't know, this is what came to my mind. It's kind of like, Somebody who hates baseball being at the Cubs World Series last game. Wait, somebody's getting up walking out because of that. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I won't point you out. Um, some of you who are old time open door people are like, really? We're doing that again? Uh, but that's what came to mind. So verse 28 through 32 as we continue says this, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as, he, as if he was gonna go further. And they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and began, and, and began to give it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. And then, Jesus, and then he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we talked, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. So I just wanna share this, this, call out one aspect of this and then two implications and then we're gonna move on to the rest of our gathering, which is beautiful, a moment of worship into baptisms. But I just wanna call out why was it bread that caused their eyes to this moment where Jesus broke bread? In my mind, I would think the Bible study would have opened their eyes. Jesus himself is teaching them the scriptures. Like, I would think that that would be the moment. Why is it that it was when Jesus broke bread? And so I just want to call this out briefly. There are two other times that Jesus broke bread in the Gospel of Luke. This biography 
of Jesus called the Gospel of Luke. And it was when Jesus fed the 5,000 people who were hungry, and the second time is the Last Supper before Jesus died, when he initiated this communion act with followers of Jesus. Feeding the 5,000 in Luke chapter nine is a call back to the Exodus when the people of God were in the wilderness and, and God was giving them food and nourishment every day, supernaturally in the middle of the wilderness. That is a call back to, to that, that's the same God. Jesus is the expression of that God, fully God and fully man. It's this callback we know theologically, but there's also another callback. In, in Luke chapter 22, during the Last Supper, um, this idea of breaking bread, the other time that it happened, it, 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 it like rounds out this expression of who Jesus is. When, when Jesus calls back to that moment, I will also suffer and die. And here Jesus is saying, I am your Moses, but so much more. I will deliver you, but I will also suffer for you. I am king, but I'm also servant. And all of this comes together as he breaks bread and their eyes are opened. Uh, and, and if you can just imagine the intensity of, of that moment where Jesus appeared, they realize it's Jesus. Their containers for holding Jesus are obliterated. The small Jesus all of a sudden becomes big immediately. The shock of that moment, and then Jesus disappears, which happens, weird things like that happen all over in these post-resurrection moments, as we'll see, and, and I don't know fully what to think of all of them, uh, but I do think, as, on some level, I wonder if Jesus is having fun. I, I just do. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, maybe, maybe not totally theologically accurate. I don't know. I don't think we fully know, but Jesus disappears, and it's fascinating, fascinating to me. So here's what happens. They went back to Jerusalem. They were leaving Jerusalem, centering or distancing themselves from the center of the story, and now they run back to the center of the story ah, because hope is alive. And they tell the other 11, they tell the story, and then there's more stories and more appearances that we'll go into but I just wanna talk about two implications to this. The first one is this, um, and there's many. I'm just gonna name two that were on my heart for us as I prayed for us, and it's this. God's presence is experienced where it is welcomed. And I wanna name this. My friend Jerry, who's sitting up here this past week, um, told me, you know that pursuit thing you do, I did last weekend, that never gets old. Thank you for sharing that, Jerry. And, and it, here's, here's what I wanna do, and I wanna paint another layer to this. This idea, I did it last weekend, that if this is us and this is God, and we turn our back on God, and we're moving away from God like they were on the road to Emmaus, the idea is that God's far away. So if we try to turn back to God, we have to figure out how to get from here to there. But the story of scripture, and we see it in this passage, is that they didn't find Jesus first, Jesus found them first. The idea is pursuit, and it's all through the Bible. When we turn our back on God, pursuit looks like this. You've heard me say it over and over. When we turn around, God's there. He's, been, he's closer than you think. Just because you can't fit him in, in your containers doesn't mean that God is far away. But here's what I want to point out. I want to point out that when you think about pursuit, that can be a scary thing. Have you ever been chased? Have you ever been chased on the road where you're like, you did something grumpy to somebody, and they like tail you for a while, and you're like, are they an ax murderer? I think, I don't know, who are they? And you, you get a little nervous on the inside. Um, pursuit can look like different things if we don't understand the motives. 
But what we see in Jesus over and over in scripture is this patient pursuit. We're moving, he's stopping. We're moving, he's stopping. Does Jesus have the power to conquer us? <laughs> yes. We're moving, he's there. Jesus is there, this beautiful pursuit. And in verse 13, 15, I say it again, Jesus came up and walked alongside them. There was no hope for them in that Jesus was just walking alongside them. Why was there no hope in that alone? Because they, their eyes weren't open. They didn't know that it was Jesus right there. They had no idea that that was Jesus. So close, yet so far. And in this moment, there is something in them happening, in their heart. Maybe it's happening with someone here this morning where there's like this burning there's something inside that's saying yes, and they just can't figure out exactly what it is. We know because they see, we're not our hearts burning within us as we walked on the, on the road. And here we see Jesus's love in his nearness. They would have never found Jesus if he didn't find them first. And we also see Jesus patiently waiting to be invited. This caught my attention, so bear with me for a moment. Verse 28, Jesus continued it, the Bible says. They stopped to go into the home. Jesus continued as if he were going further. Jesus wasn't gonna stay there. Now we know eventually Jesus would be ascend into heaven and the Holy Spirit would be sent so that all could receive, but in this case here, Jesus was gonna continue on. And it says they urged him strongly, stay with us. And that verse in Revelations 3.20 came to mind. Here I am, it says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. God will not break down our door. And I don't, I can't, sometimes I can't figure it out. Like I'm a, you ever pray for somebody, you're like, God, will you break down their door? I mean, we, we notice as a staff family, we prayed over all the cards on the pillars in, uh, in the gathering place um, from last weekend. The question was, where do you need to see God, hope to rise? And we noticed uh, patterns. We were noticing patterns and praying for them. One of the patterns we noticed is that many of them had uh, called out family members and other friends, people. Apparently, you care about other people. And, uh, and I just think sometimes it would be a lot easier I know it's not the truth, and I'll explain why I think probably it's not the truth, but in my flesh, will you break down some doors and show people how close you are, God? You know, and maybe some of you feel that with somebody in your life. He will not break down doors, and he will not force himself into your world. And, and here's why I think why. The fast way for a kingdom to advance is through dominance. It is the earthly way. It is the kingdom of Rome in the first century. We're going to exercise our power over and dominance and it's gonna move fast. Have you ever wondered why? If God's kingdom is growing and advancing and one day uh, all things will be made new, a new heaven and a new earth, I'm not gonna go into all of that, but why doesn't the story happen faster? Have you ever wondered that? I have. Why is, why is this story moving so slow? Because the method for God's kingdom advancing is, is not that kind of power or oppression. It is suffering love. And suffering love by its nature has to move slow. 
because it's subversive and it requires an invitation, not a demand. Will you follow me, Jesus says. I stand at the door and not will you open the door. So there's this like slow moving kingdom of God. And, but here's what's beautiful. I, the kingdoms of this world come and go. Rome now isn't the center of power in the world. Comes and goes. Power is fleeting. But there's a story and it feels like it's a long bake, but it'll actually stand the test of time. Okay. Jesus is close to you, patiently waiting for you to welcome him in. And then lastly, the second noticing here is when we welcome Jesus in, Jesus comes to us as he is, not as we expect him to be. So let's just hear this for a moment, church family. As followers of Jesus, I found myself feeling how strongly in our culture we need to come to grips with what we see in this passage here. They found Jesus. Well, really, Jesus found them, but he wasn't the Moses like Jesus they expected. And we live in a culture where we can curate a faith that always agrees with us and a Jesus that always looks like us. We can curate podcasts that agree with us. We can follow people on social media that always agree with us. We can create a patchwork of theology, finding Bible teachers and books that always agree with us, more access to that than ever before. We can even change churches or faith families until we find a group of people that perfectly agree with us, which means you will never find a forever home in that way. And we can develop an imagination that Jesus is exactly as you pictured him and agrees with you perfectly. And the problem with this is this, the path of Christianity is formation into the image of Jesus. The pathway for the Christian life is formation to Jesus' image, not Jesus forming to our image. And in the two verses, if you're taking notes, you can just jot them down. Romans 12, 2 um, says this. I'm just gonna call it out since I have it marked here. It says this, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve that God, what God's will is, his good and perfect and pleasing will. And if you want a whole chapter to read, read Colossians 3.10. It talks about that because the essence of the Christian faith is this, that we now have a king and it's not us. And we are adapting to the kingdom of God. We are learning to live into the kingdom of God. We are not calling the kingdom of God to adapt to us. Are you with me, church family? We're invited into a new way of living. Um, N.T. Wright said it like this. He said, the reason Jesus wasn't the sort of king people wanted in his own day is that was the true king, that he was the true king, but they had become used to the ordinary, shabby, second-rate sort. They were looking for a builder to construct the home they wanted, but he, Jesus, was the architect, coming with a new plan that would give, that would give them everything they need, but within quite a different framework. So let me end with this story here. Uh, years ago, and my son was four years old, he... Um, it was the first time, we lived near a lake at that point, and it was like that first day where you can jump into the water and it's not too cold in Chicagoland or Minnesota, and it's like, yes! Some of you jump in way too early. <laughs> and my son, a little four-year-old, 
uh, he, was running, he was going to run into the lake, but he needed his life jacket first, so there's this bin with life jackets in it at her friend's house, and my wife put her cell phone on it, and Jude just runs up, and he opens the bin, and her cell phone goes flying into the lake. But, and that was back when cell phones weren't waterproof, right? And so it's slow motion, no! Here's what's interesting. Uh, my four-year-old son had a little bit of a different worldview than my wife, Stephanie. My wife's like, oh man, uh, that's my phone, I'm gonna lose my phone. And my son actually thought he killed Siri. And he was really sad. Uh, this story came to mind. Uh, and here's why this story came to mind. I wanna ask two questions. Uh, one, one question is this. What separates my 43-year-old grasp on reality from my son, who's not four anymore, but from a four-year-old boy? Like, how much separation is there? I'm here. Like, I probably have a better grasp on reality. I, I, maybe, I think. Uh, so the second question is, what separates my 43-year-old grasp on reality from God, the Alpha and Omega? I want to point this out, and here's why I want to point it out. The Christian life, I believe, is less about our, our certainty and our intellectual capacity to figure out God. And I believe it's more a posture, a posture of dependence before the Lord. How in the world could I figure this thing out? And I began to think about us as a church family as we gather. The goal as we gather yeah, we care about truth. But what are we doing with that truth? Are we trying to send out into the world really certain people who take stances? Or are we trying to send out into the world people filled with wonder at a God that's bigger than we could fit in our brains who are truly surrendered before the Lord, trying to not just know it all, but actually live the way of Jesus and what truth we do have a grasp on, wielding it in the way Jesus would wield it? What if we were marked less by our stances and more about our posture of surrender before the Lord? I just see it. I just see it in the life and it just grabbed me in the scripture. So I'm gonna invite up my friend Spencer who's gonna come up for a moment. And, um, and I just think, I'll just ask this, is there something burning in you? If you're new to this thing or not sure what you think about it, following Jesus, I mean, I wanna encourage you um, that you can, wherever you're at, invite the nearness, invite Jesus. Like, sometimes we say in Christian circles, you don't have to invite God, God's everywhere. They invited Jesus in. Like, do we want God really just standing in the back, just kind of watching what's happening here? Jesus, you are welcome here. Will you come? Um, I wanna encourage you to do that. This is also an invitation to surrender to Jesus for all of us who are followers of Jesus and actually stay surrendered even when he burst our small categories and containers that we've kept him in. The Bible shouldn't agree with you all the time. It's okay. It's very uncomfortable though. So here's what we're gonna do, and then we're gonna go experience some baptisms together. I wanna invite us all to stand today. <clears throat> yeah, and if you're being baptized today, uh, two things I think I'll say to that. One, if um, 
I wanna encourage you, church family, to look at the baptisms, this next segment, like in the gathering place, as an extension of our gathering, and just stay as long as you can to celebrate that. Um, two, if you're being baptized today and want to begin to move out so that you can get ready for that, feel free to do that. Um, we're just gonna sing a simple chorus, turn your eyes upon Jesus, but we're gonna do it differently. This is a song I've sang almost my whole life following Jesus. You probably sang that a long time too. I remember even singing it as my, putting my kids to bed when they were babies. Sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And so we're actually gonna do it today without microphones because we wanna encourage a space where we all lead the way together. In your daily life and in my daily life, we need the presence of God, but you're not gonna always have Spencer here playing the guitar and singing, right? We can actually, in our following Jesus, exercise some practice on our own. And so let's do this. And if you're online together today, we're just gonna lift up our voices. Hopefully you can catch on a little bit. And we're just gonna focus our eyes on Jesus. And then after that, we're gonna move into the gathering place and experience baptism together. So you gotta lift your voice up. Let's sing together.